Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 24. Last week, I began the history of the Philistines, and that episode covering their mentions in the first few books of the Old Testament, at least partially through their interactions with the Judge Samson, found, of course, in the Book of Judges. This week, I'm continuing their history, picking up where I left off in the text, towards the end of Judges, and with that, let's get started. In the last episode, I ended after Samson slayed some 30 Philistines after losing a wager to them. Though, to be accurate, they did essentially extort his wife in a cheating scheme. After this, he torched their crops using foxes to spread the fire. And they found his wife and father-in-law and burned them both in an act of revenge. Samson vowed his own revenge and apparently killed an untold number of them, then took refuge in what's described as a cleft in the rocks at Edom, a few miles west of Jerusalem. Though, do recall that Jerusalem at this time was not an Israelite city, but was instead occupied by the Jebusites, and therefore the city was known as Jebus. I covered the city and the people in Chapter 5, Episode 7. I'm picking up the narrative this week with what happened to Samson after he hid in the cleft of the rock. Once again, the story is told rather succinctly in the text, so I'll essentially quote it, though with a bit of paraphrasing, if only to correct tenses and make it a bit clearer. Picking up in Judges 15. When the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah, they raided on the village of Lehi. Pausing for a second. Lehi was a city to the southwest of Jerusalem. It sits in a region known as the Judean Lowland, essentially a valley between the Judean hills to the east and the coastal plain in the west. But that's not why the Philistines first stopped there on their search for Samson. Instead, this was due to the city being on a major road that led to the port city of Gaza, and Gaza was held by the Philistines. So, it was on their way to where Samson was hiding, though we're never told that they knew where he was. That becomes important in a minute. Lehi is the same place that the forces of King David fought the Philistines in 2 Samuel 23, I'll get to that entanglement in the next episode. Unpausing. When the Philistines arrived at Lehi, they were met by some men from the tribe of Judah, which makes sense as Lehi was located inland allotted to this tribe. And that also tells us that the territory surrounding the city was under the control of Judah, at least nominally. The men from the tribe asked the Philistines, why have you come up against us? And keep in mind that when you read of people traveling up or down in the text, it's not referring to compass directions, but instead to elevation changes, like going uphill or downhill. So, in this case, when the men of Judah asked the Philistines why they came up, it serves as a reinforcement that the Philistines traveled from the coastal city of Gaza uphill to Lehi. As the compass reads, they traveled mostly east. 
the Philistines answered the Judeans, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Referring back to when he struck them down hip and thigh with great slaughter earlier in the chapter. And it must have been a great force of Philistines, as it prompted a strong reaction from the Judeans, with some 3,000 men from Judah going down to the cleft of the rock at Edom, where they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then have you done to us? Samson replied, As they did to me, so I have done to them. The Judean men said to him, We have come down to bind you, meaning to restrain him. Think the ancient equivalent of handcuffs and leg irons. Back in the text, the Judean men tell Samson that they plan on shackling him, then handing him over to the Philistines. So much for valuing him as their own countrymen. After he's told of this, Samson replies, Swear to me that you yourselves will not attack me. They told him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. By this point, you should be figuring out that Samson has something up his sleeve. The Judean men led him back to the town of Lehi, where the Philistines were waiting. When they arrived, the Philistines came shouting, Just as they came out for him, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. Then it gets even stranger. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached down and took it, and with it he killed a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey... I have slain a thousand men. Skipping ahead a little, after this, Samson went on to act as a judge in Israel for twenty years. And the last verse in the text, at least in this chapter, tells us during all of this, the Philistines continued their control over the Israelites. At least it's implied. The actual text reads, He judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years, which is a little ambiguous. It could also be interpreted that they coexisted or conflicted in this time, but overall, that's a minority view. At some point later, and when exactly, we're not told, Samson went to the Philistine coastal city of Gaza. While there, He has a potential altercation with the residents of the city, the Gazites, but instead of fighting them, he took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts. He pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. And Hebron was some distance away, east of Gaza and uphill. Sometime after this, Samson meets, then falls for Delilah. And just like they had done with his long-dead wife, the Philistines get to her. But instead of threatening her with death, in an attempt to understand the source of his strength, they instead bribe her with 1,100 pieces of silver from each of a group of men 
known as the Lords of the Philistines. While we're not told how many lords there were, a safe assumption is that they were the kings from the various Philistine cities mentioned in Judges 3. So, five of them, meaning Delilah was bribed with 5,500 silver coins. No real mention of the weight or value, so no practical way for me to convert them to a modern equivalent. But, if the pieces of silver were the size of a U.S. nickel, which weighs 5 grams, that would amass 61 pounds of silver, nearly 28 kilograms, a hefty sum, even for the wife of Samson. And the bribe was enough to get her to betray her husband, or at least try. She asked him three different times where his strength comes from, and three times he lies to her. In this case, though, the fourth time was the charm. In the text, we're told that after she nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. So he told her his whole secret and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be like anyone else. And remember, I covered the Nazarites in chapter 5, episode 20. As a refresher, they were Israelites who voluntarily took a vow described in Numbers 6. As part of this vow, they were to abstain from all wine and anything else made from grapes, though traditional rabbinic authorities state that all other types of alcohol were permitted. Also, they could not become ritually impure by contact with corpses or graves, even those of family members. And most importantly, at least in Samson's case, they had to refrain from cutting their hair and had to allow the locks of the head's hair to grow. After a lifetime of this, I wonder why no one noticed that he had hair much longer than the typical Israelite. Back in the text, Delilah sent for the lords of the Philistines, telling them that she now knew his secret. They came to her and paid what was due. She then has Samson fall asleep in her lap, with the underlying message in that being that he still trusted her. Once asleep, she called in a man who shaved off his seven locks, likely seven really large matted locks due to its non-stop, never-trimmed growth, and also due to the exact number of seven being given. As soon as the last lock fell off, he weakened, though since he was still asleep, he didn't know it yet. She then wakes him up, just as she had done the prior three times, by telling him the Philistines were approaching and he needed to fight them. This time was different, though, as the text tells us that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza 
and bound him with bronze shackles. Yet another indication that the transition from bronze to iron tools was not on an exact date. Also recall from a couple of episodes ago that the text tells us the Philistines mastered iron long before the Israelites. The Israelites would only gain the technology during King David's reign at the earliest. To us, this passage may go unnoticed, but to the ancient Israelites, the use of bronze shackles carried a heavy meaning, probably serving as yet another reminder as to why they were subservient to their neighbors. They didn't kill Samson, and instead threw him in prison, where he provided labor for a mill, probably a grain mill. At some point in the future, I need to cover what those were and how they worked. The paragraph ends with a curious statement, that his hair began to grow again, though now it was of little use as his strength remained gone. I reckon that he was a rather large man, though, as the stone mill was heavy and not for the weak, but his strength was likely on par with similar-sized men and no longer supernatural. The book of Judges isn't quite done with Samson's interactions with the Philistines. There's one last scene. The narrative picks up an untold time later. At this point, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to their god Dagon, and to rejoice, for they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Given what they prayed to Dagon, the general assumption is that this was occurring shortly after they captured him. I'll have more on this Dagon in a future episode about the Philistines, but I first need to get through all of their mentions in the Old Testament. When the Philistine populace saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, and let him entertain us. My mind went immediately to the savage revelry in the movie Gladiator. This was likely something rather similar, though no mention is made of a fight. They brought Samson out from the prison, and he performed for them. What and how this happened is never said. At some point, they made him stand between two pillars, so stone columns. Samson said to the attendant who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, so that I may lean against them. Now, the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson performed. And given that there were some 3,000 on the roof alone, and those that were up there could see him, this really wasn't a house, maybe a festival hall or a large temple. Either way, it was packed and of curious construction, which I'm getting to. Samson called to the Lord, saying, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, so that with this one act of revenge I may pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. And I'm going to pause for a second. 
The footnote of the New Revised Standard notes that an alternate translation was that he was only seeking revenge for the loss of one of his eyes, not both. The NIV adds an additional detail, that Samson asked for the revenge to be so swift that it would only take one blow of the strength that had left him with his haircut. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. He strained with all his might, and the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. And with that, he killed more with his final act than the sum of those he had killed during his life. His brothers made the trip down to Gaza to retrieve his body and buried him in the family tomb. From a historical perspective, this last story of Samson tells us a bit more about the Philistines. The population living in Gaza, and potentially the surrounding area, was large enough that at least 3,000 could make the time and trip for the entertainment of a blind prisoner. And that's just the number on the roof. An unknown number were inside. Also, their buildings were supported by columns, and likely well-engineered enough that there wasn't an overabundance of columns, though not engineered well enough that the loss of two caused the entire thing to collapse. Of course, they worshipped this deity named Dagon. I'll have more on him later, but he wasn't exclusive to the Philistines and was also mentioned in Ugaritic in Assyrian text. Then, in an interesting cultural point, either enough of the population was killed or there was still some respect between the Philistines and Israelites that Samson's brothers were allowed to retrieve his body. When I say that the text of the Bible is rich in cultural and historical clues, it's passages such as these that lead me to this conclusion. And that's it for Samson and his protracted interactions with the Philistines. So, let's move forward in the text. The narrative is silent on the Philistines for the rest of Judges and the next book, the Book of Ruth. Four chapters into 1 Samuel, we get their next mention. In this part of the Old Testament narrative, the Israelites and the Philistines assembled for a battle, a battle that took on two phases. In the first, Israel was defeated, with about 4,000 Israelite soldiers meeting their end on the battlefield, a defeat that Samuel described as a rout. The troops that made it out alive went back to the camp and conferred with the elders of the nation, at least those that had made the journey. The elders asked themselves, Why has the Lord put us to rout today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they had the Ark brought to the battlefield obviously thinking this would give them the upper hand in the next battle. When the ark arrived, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so loud that it said the earth resounded. I don't know exactly what that means, but it might mean that it was so loud it echoed back at them. 
and it wasn't just heard by the Israelites. The encamped Philistines, some distance away, heard it. And I'm going to pause yet again. Earlier in this story, we're told the Israelites encamped to Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. These two places are believed to have been about two to three miles, around four kilometers apart, which made me wonder, how loud was that shout? First, a caveat. Acoustics can change the way sound travels tremendously. A thick forest with lush undergrowth will almost completely absorb a loud noise, so that even the loudest thing I can think of, a jet, may not make it two miles. Of course, this wasn't a thick forest, but is instead a rather dry desert where, on a cold night, sound would easily travel that far. Assuming, of course, there are no mountains or other obstacles in between. With those caveats out of the way, I did find a few sources of how loud it might have been. You'll have to use your imagination, but just a little. The U.S. military routinely repairs jet engines, then tests them on fixtures before reinstalling them in the plane. When they do this, as you can imagine, it's very loud, and the neighbors complain. So, they did what they do, and spent a great deal of money and time on a study. One of these measured the noise produced by a specific engine within a few feet of the engine itself, as well as two miles away, which is why I'm mentioning it here. Immediately beside this engine, at 100% throttle, the noise was measured at 132 decibels, and two miles away, the same engine was heard at 70 decibels, though I did find other sources that have jets taking off as loud as 150 decibels, which may also be true, especially if they have multiple engines. But that isn't why I'm bringing up jets. I was more interested in how that sound decreases as distance increases. One quick note. Decibels are not a linear measure, but instead are logarithmic, as the deci prefix in the word might give away. So a 70 decibel sound isn't half that of 140, but is much, much quieter. In fact, an 80 decibel sound is twice as loud as 70. Obviously, 132 decibels is the sound of a jet engine throttling up right beside you. And it's just not loud, but you can feel it. For comparison, 60 decibels is about the level of a normal face-to-face -face conversation. Are we going to start calling those mask-to-mask? -mask? I digress. 70 is about the level of city traffic if you're standing on a street corner. So, for the shout of the Israelite army to have been heard over two miles away, at the level that the Philistines would have noticed it, it would have had to been as loud as a jet engine, which made me wonder if this was possible. And there is a close analog. Football stadiums. At least what used to be American football stadiums packed shoulder to shoulder with fans. 
On September 29, 2014, the fans of the Kansas City Chiefs managed to blast out a record 142.2 decibels at their home field, Arrowhead Stadium. This is on par with a jet at takeoff, and if the military study is true, two miles away, it would have been roughly as loud as city traffic. Though, there is a difference. In a football stadium, all of the screaming fans are facing each other, concentrating the sound. Then again, all of the Israelites could have been facing a centrally located ark and concentrating the sound. So, the noise they made is at least plausible. I bet you didn't expect all of that. Jet engines, military studies, American football fans, in the episode on the Philistines. Speaking of them, the reason I mentioned the Israelites' great yell is the Philistines' reaction. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come up to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, Gods have come into the camp. Pausing for a second. The plural form of gods is in the text, though the footnote in the New Revised Standard also gives an alternate translation that a god, singular, has come into the camp. This alternate translation is how it's rendered in the NIV. The King James has the Philistines saying that God came into the camp. Of course, the Philistines didn't believe in the same God as the Israelites, at least not in the same way that the Israelites did. They were polytheistic, meaning they had other deities too, including Dagon, mentioned in Judges, like many people, cultures, and religions of that time and place. Actually, like nearly all of them, save the Israelites, they had more than one. Having said that, they may have believed that the God of the Israelites did exist, but held that he just wasn't the only deity. So goes polytheism. What I'm getting at is that any of these three translations could be pedantically correct. After hearing the great shout, the Philistines were afraid, saying, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And, in this case, even the King James renders gods as plural. Then a Philistine leader spoke up. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. That last part is exactly how I envisioned generals of that era motivating troops to the battlefront. And it worked. The Philistines did fight, and despite the Ark being on the battlefield, Israel was defeated, and they fled, everyone to his home. It was a massive slaughter, with over 30,000 Israelite soldiers perishing. But that wasn't all. The Philistines captured the Ark of God. What happened after that, we'll have to wait until the next episode, 
as I'm out of time. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history of the Philistines. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.